story that many of you may know or have heard. If not, this is a great story you're going to hear for the first time. Luke chapter 15, verse 10. I don't normally read this much in a passage to start it, but I want you to get the, the, the whole story here. This is the story of a prodigal son. And it says, likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. And he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. Now many days after, the younger son had gathered all and took his journey into a far country. There wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. This might be why life planning seminars, the uh, uh, end of life planners, they encourage you. You know, you, you, if, you, if you have life insurance and a, and a will, you have like a percentage goes to a child at 18, another percentage at 25. You know, it's sometimes, sometimes wise because because of this reason. They get it all at once, and they just went out and wasted it. Riotous living. You just spent it all. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. That's King James. That's real deep. It's just, he got so hungry, and no food, he ate the pig's food. Okay? And he said, when he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my father's house have bread enough to spare? And I'm sitting here perishing with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and I'm, I'm no worthy to be called thy son. Make me, just make me one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But he was a great way off. His father saw him and he had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against the, in thy sight. No more am I worthy to be called your son. Father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, kill the fatted calf. And he says, let us eat and be merry, for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found and they begun to be merry. And now his elder son was in the field and he came back in. He heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and said, well, you know, what's going on? What do these things mean? And he said, thy brother has come and thy father has killed the fatted calf because he's received him safe and sound. And his brother, the older brother, he was angry. He would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, lo, these many years do I serve thee. Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid, just that, that fatted lamb, that fatted cow. He says that I may... Be merry with my friends, but as soon as your other son comes home, which hath devoured thy living with the harlots, any, any parent ever have a child say, it's not fair? Can you, just for the sake, this has nothing to do with my message, it's me as a dad wanting to make sure that I'm not failing miserably every day of my life. Can any parent just raise your hand if you've ever had one of your kids say, it's not fair? Thank God. All right. I was, if nobody raised their hand, I was going to set the mic down and leave. I just... So, so as soon as the son came, which devoured living with the harlots, and thou hast killed him with the fatted calf, he says, or killed for him the fatted calf, he said to him, son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this day, that brother was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. This morning, 
I just want to preach for a little while on this topic. Lost in your own house. Lost in your own house. Jesus, thank you so much. God, we're grateful. We're grateful for you, for the cross that we heard about this morning. Lord Jesus, we're thankful for salvation. We're thankful for forgiveness. We're thankful for this building that we're able to gather in today. We're thankful for every man, woman, and child who's either in person or online, Jesus, who's part of this beautiful thing called the church that you've allowed us to be a part of. And so, God, we just pray right now that you would anoint me. Lord, speak through me. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen. In the 1600s, an artist named Rembrandt created a piece of art that tried to capture the return of the prodigal. In fact, the piece is actually entitled The Return of the Prodigal Son, and we'll show this piece right now. That is the best we can do. But if you look at that, it really is a rather remarkable painting. It was made to depict the moment that the prodigal son returned to his father in the biblical passage that we just read. In the painting, the son had returned home in a wretched state from travels and in which he wasted his inheritance and was in poverty and despair. The prodigal is kneeling in brokenness and weakness and vulnerability, and he is bald and seemingly exhausted without a, a clothing and wearing, really without a cloak, I mean a top cloak, and, and wearing only one shoe if you look real closely. And he's completely disheveled. That painting speaks so much about the state of the prodigal son. He's a picture of a life that has been totally broken, totally disheveled. The plans that he had just months or weeks earlier were completely gone. He kneels before his father in repentance, wishing for forgiveness in a renewed place in the family, having realized that even his father's servants are better off than what he had. And his father receives him with this tender gesture as he leans down and puts his hands on his back and embraces him. But you go back to the beginning of the parable in Luke 15, the only place that we find it in the Bible, and look a little deeper into the story. According to the parable, the younger son demanded a percentage of the estate, which at that time in biblical times would have been one-third. And so he takes that one-third of the family estate and he runs from home. But in traditional Middle Eastern culture, for a son to ask inheritance from his father while his father was still living, I mean, imagine if you have a will. If you don't, we're actually bringing in specialists, and we're having a family life planning seminar at the end of June right here, and I'm paying, the church is paying the whole bill. There's a Friday night seminar, then he, there's individual appointments for families all through Saturday and Sunday evening, and you will get life planning advice from an expert, and we're paying for all of it. So make sure that you put that in your calendar because we believe in that. But imagine now you have a will and your child comes up and says, you know what, Dad? You're not dead yet, but I still want the will. Can I have it? Essentially, what you were saying in Middle Eastern culture, and even yet today, I would, I would argue, is, Father, I'm eager for you to die, and I'd rather you be dead so I can have my stuff. And he shames his father and disgraces his family by what he does. But things go so badly that he loses it all in riotous living. And imagine he's sitting there wallowing in the mud, crawling around, looking, fighting pigs for corn stalks, you know. And so things go so bad. And for a Jewish listener in Jesus' day, the people he was telling this parable to, they would have viewed that younger brother as falling into the worst of the worst. Because for Jews, once you... Touching pigs 
That was so unclean. That was actually four times more unclean than visiting a prostitute. Because of the law of Moses. And so Jesus telling the story, they're like, what? Oh, man, that's, that's horrible. That's a terrible kid. But then in verse 17, it says, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, I need to go back home. And when he comes to his senses, he turns around, he comes back home and understand this. It takes a lot of humility to lay down your pride and make that first initial turn to go back home. It's very difficult. This is why sometimes people will walk away from a church that they've been a part of and they will go and experiment in things and, and they will find that those things are empty and that those things do not bring the joy and fulfillment that they were hoping that they would bring. But oftentimes people still don't go back home because if I go back home, where have you been? Well, you should have known better and all that. I pray that this church is never a church that's like that. If someone comes back home, we do not read about the father saying, well, why are you being so, such a knucklehead? I'll have to think about it. Where have you been? What exactly did you do? And so I say that maybe, maybe somebody's watching online today, and you're just feeling hopeless and helpless and out of control. Let me tell you, if you're in our area, come back home. And if you're watching, we have a lot of people watching. If you're watching, you don't know where to go, email the church at info at refugechurchonline.com, and I, will pro I promise you I'll find you a place near you where you can go home. See, God, he will, he will do just like what, what he did for the prodigal son in this story. After all, Jesus starts the parable. We think a certain man had two sons. But what was the very first verse that we read? In verse 10, it said, Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God when one sinner repents. Can you just envision this right now? If one sinner repents, one backslider who's walked away from God comes back home, there is a party in heaven, a party in heaven. And I find it interesting that when Jesus tells the parable, he says, let me tell you, I start by saying there's, a, there's everyone, the angels rejoice in the presence of God when one sinner repents. Now let me tell you a parable about someone who walks away. But when he comes back home, there's a party. There is, a, there is a, like a marriage supper of the lamb and music is playing so loud that his brother heard it from the field. I believe that, that music is just a, a powerful part in being the atmosphere of God. And it's so loud that when the brother comes back and he's, what's going on here? Everybody's eating their there's music going on. I just believe that in heaven, that there is literal music, that there is just this atmosphere of praise and worship. When, when a sinner repents, that angels just begin to worship and cry out to God. And so the prodigal son walked home, and imagine how nervous he would have been if we've ever messed up and had to go someone to a boss, to a spouse, to someone that we just have really messed up. And imagine, he's, he's walking home and just, I wonder if he started to go back, I can't. Yeah, I got to. I can't. I got to. I just can't. No, I got to. But what am I going to say? Should I come in? Should I, how do I, how do I word? Do I look him in the eye? Do I look down? I don't even know, I don't even know what I would say. What's he going to say? And, and just starts to analyze everything. 
And he goes through, what should I say? What should I do? And imagine the agony and the stress and the fear that must have toiled on him and his mind as he started heading back toward the house where he grew up. Maybe it's kind of like the same things we fight through when, when someone's preaching and you feel God start to just kind of impact your heart and you start to feel something kind of turning inside of you and you're like, I, I know what he's saying is right. I know what she's saying is right. I, I got to get to an altar. But when you're sitting in your pew and you look, and it's, it's amazing how long this aisle can look. When you're seated in a pew and the preacher says, the altar is open. Let's just come and find a place to pray. And inside you're going, I gotta get in the presence. I gotta, I, I, I gotta, I wanna repent. Maybe I wanna be baptized. I wanna have these sins washed away. But the journey from there to here looks so long, and then the journey from here to there looks so long. And so oftentimes people will walk out and not take the journey because, man, it's just, it's so scary. It's so long. But for him, he's he's making his way back and he's and he's thinking about the things that he's going to say. And, and, he's, and he's, he's, he's heading back to see his dad. And, but after all, you, you think about this. And this is, this is often what we do. Yeah, but I can't go to an altar. They're going to, what if everyone thinks this about me? Or I, I've, I've done so much. I've fallen so far. And these are no doubt things that this prodigal son had to work through, had to argue with and, and fight in the, his own emotions and but the book of Revelation tells us it's, it's so interesting. Instead of us going back to lay down with the pigs and fight over food in the mud, Revelation 19.8 paints this incredible picture. As he it tells us what the Father wants from his people. It says, Revelation 19.8, And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Isn't it interesting that when the prodigal son comes home, one of the first things out of the father's mouth is, go get some new clean clothes and get the royal robe. Put something on that signifies that this, this prodigal is still my son. And we serve a God who says, you won't be a part of my church. I'm calling you to repent. The very first message that he preaches when Jesus starts his public ministry is repent for the kingdom of God. He, John the Baptist preached it. Jesus walked in and preached it. And when his people repent, there is a place of purity and consecration that he says, no, 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 no. I know you think you've fallen too far to still be my child, but that's not the case. I'm so thankful for that. And this prodigal son walks home rehearsing. He thinks everything, how, how he thinks everything is going to go. I'm going to go do this. So I'm going to say this, and I'm just going to beg him, and, and hopefully he'll take me back. And, and look what the Bible says. It says, verse 20, he arose, came to his father, and when he was yet a great way off. What does that statement tell you? Everybody calls it the story of the prodigal son. To me, this story is way more about the father than it is the son. What does that statement tell you? When he was a great way off, his father saw him. That, to me, enlightens me about the whole entire story. Because that tells me that every single day, 
every single day, man, I just know one of these days he's going to come back. And for those of you that have kids or grandkids or spouses, people that maybe once served God and they walked away, and I could only imagine how heartbreaking that is for you. That you're like, I I raised him better, and we knew better, and and I can't believe this happened. How did we fall this far? And sometimes we can get to the point where we say, they're never coming back. I don't see them ever coming back. I just just keep looking down that road. I know one day, it just takes, it just takes, every human being on the face of this earth is one decision away from serving God. Sometimes we look at, oh, but you don't know this. Look at the way they talk. Look at the way they act. Look at the places they go. They're scary. Look what they used to do. Oh, you don't know how bad they fall. Every human being is one decision, just one decision, away from walking into the waters of baptism and having their sins completely washed away. From coming up out of the water and raising those hands in the air and being filled with His Spirit. Every human being is just one decision away. And so that father, when I read this and I say, his father saw him, he, he had compassion. He ran up there he, and he ran. Imagine, okay, he ran. This guy, this dad is looking and way down there, wait, could you imagine the way his heart felt that day when, hang on. But he looked a little different, a little more dirty, he had different clothing on. He had been through some things in life now. And so I just wonder if he was like, is that? No. I think that, I think that might, is there? And then he just starts booking down the road and sees that son and embraces him. And they start walking back to the house, I'd imagine. You know the Greek word for ran there? Is the word used at, at something as a fast sprint as in Olympic games? So this old dad was not like, hey, Junior. This guy was like, <laughs> I mean, like, it's, he, he's like, whew. I mean, he's booking. He had, he had his Nikes on, right? He doesn't tap his foot and say, this better be good. This father is running as fast as he can to get back to his boy. The Bible says the father kissed him. No other religion describes their God like Christianity does. There's no, yeah, but there's religion everywhere. There's creation stories. No other religion describes the Christian God like that, that he's willing to humble himself, take on flesh, become born of a virgin, lower himself down to our level, walk in our shoes, tempted as we're tempted. And he loves us and he accepts us. Even when we betray him, we're, we're unfaithful to him. We let him down. But the Bible's just this account of his pursuit to know us and to use us and to save us. I'm so grateful for that. And so he reinstates his son in a position of authority by stripping off the old, torn, foul-smelling clothes from the pigs, placing the best robe on him, giving him a signet ring of legal authority, outfits him with shoes of a free man who belongs in the house. This message is so powerful because everything is why Jesus told the story is because this represents our Heavenly Father. 
In other words, God dances with the shattered and broken child who's trying to come back home. God dances and embraces the one who says, I've fallen too far. I'll never be the same. Just let me be a servant. And he doesn't, you never even once see the father even acknowledge that he just spoke that. He never says, well, let's just wait. Let's talk about it. It was never an option. You were always coming back as a child. God was wanting his people to understand that message. And here he uses a descriptive story. But later in the New Testament, Paul says this in Ephesians 3. He says, may you who have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. Paul was trying to explain to a church you, you, you got to try to grasp this. His love is so deep. It's so high. It's so wide. He's trying to get us to see it. And he says, may you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand. We think we understand, but we will never understand because we love people. But people could hurt us or do things that cause you to say, enough is enough. Like with him, there's never, he, there's never enough is enough. He always loves us. He always reaches to us. Now, we can can walk away from him and say, uh, I'm not letting you in my life. But he never just says, you know what? You've fallen too far. I'm done with you. And so Paul's trying to describe this. He says, then you'll be made complete with all the fullness of life and the power that comes from God. And so this is a powerful message and an image in itself. It's, it's great to imagine God in this role and how loving and accepting he is when we repent and come to him. It's easy to imagine ourselves as the child who got a little bit off of track and someone maybe online or here today, you're really, you're really identifying with that prodigal. You're like, my life is broken or it was broken. I'm thankful for God that I can come back home and that's awesome and that's part of the message and usually what people preach but when you look at that Rembrandt painting again I look and I say but what about the other character in the painting we rejoice at the restoration of the lost brother but what about the one who stayed standing at the right is the prodigal son's older brother who crosses his hands in judgment you can kind of see Rembrandt did a great job kind of capturing the demeaning look. Looking down at his brother. Standing there, and he, in the parable, he objects to his father's compassion. He says in 28, he was angry and wouldn't go in, and his father finally had to come out. This boy, this boy is pouting. There's a party inside, there's a great meal, there's music, and he wouldn't go in, so he's out on the front porch. Arms are probably still crossed. Dad walks out and says, what's up? I'm not going in there. I've been with you the whole time and never got to have a party with my friends. We never change. To this day, adults will say, God, it's not fair, so-and-so gets a promotion. It's not fair. They live in a nicer house than I do. We never change. Father comes out, what's going on? What? Well, all those things happen, and I'm angry, and, and I stayed with him. The father says in 32, he says, it was appropriate to celebrate and be glad. Your brother was dead. He's alive again. He was lost. He was found. Come on, man. 
And in his painting, Rembrandt shows the older brother just standing there, that judgmental pose. He has a gold-embroidered garment like his father, annoyed, looking down at his father's lavish reception of his younger brother. His feeling was that the younger brother disgraced the family, spent the family fortune. You messed up. You shouldn't be in leadership. There is no restoration. And unfortunately, in 2021, there's still a lot of churches that believe there should never be restoration. Now, I am not saying that you can just continue in sin so grace can abound. Paul addressed that in the Bible. We're not just going to load up the platform with people who we know are just knowingly sinning and say, yeah, come on up and minister. But I do think that when you looked at the praise team today and the pastor and the pulpit, this church leadership team is a group of people who have experienced restoration on a regular basis. Because if we didn't, the Bible makes clear, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin are dead. So really, if he needs perfection to minister through, no one ministers. But you thank God that in his grace and his mercy, he looks at imperfect, unholy people and keeps pursuing them and calling us into something deeper. So we don't get content with sin in our lives, but we always make our way back to the Father and say, God, I have messed it up again. And I'm praying that you would please forgive me. And every time we find the embrace of the Father. But I would argue this, that the older brother is more lost than the younger brother was. Why? Because he clearly sees everyone else's lostness. I understand that's probably not a word. He can see everyone else's lostness. If somebody has enough money here today, you could make that a word for me. Just buy it in the dictionary. But he can't see his own lostness. Goodness. Are there Christians that live so long in the Father's house that they get to the place where they really become experts at seeing everyone's lostness, but they don't see their own? See, he was living with the Father, but he was far from the Father. Here he is living each day in his house with his father, the father that we just read about that was most likely looking down that road every day, dreaming, dreaming of the day that he might see his boy come walking down the street. Every day they most likely worked together and maybe sat down at the breakfast table, ate their cereal with the milk cup next to it, dry. <laughs> if you're a guest, there's an inside joke around here that I don't dump milk in my cereal. I don't like the race against time. I don't want cereal to slide down my throat. I want to chew it, and then when I'm thirsty, I'll drink my milk. And I know there's a couple of you who have received the truth, too. But he's eating breakfast with him, possibly seeing him throughout the day. No doubt that his dad, if he was in tune at all to the father... He knew his father's heart was broken. 
He knew his father agonized over the fact that one of his boys is out in riotous living. No doubt that occasionally he'd go to a market and somebody would say, hey, what's up with your son? I saw him the other day. Man, he's not looking good. He only had one shoe on his foot. You know, somebody said he's working down at Old Man's Ranch down there, living with the pigs, man. No doubt word traveled in his heart. That dad's heart was probably broken. Did the older son not know this? I would argue that would almost be impossible. Yet in spite of living in his father's house, he doesn't know his dad. He doesn't know his dad's heartbeat. He doesn't know what his dad's passionate about. Did he not pay attention every morning when his dad would sit out on the front porch just rocking? Oh, Yahweh God. Oh, Yahweh God. Let my son come home. Oh, God, I'm praying for my son. I heard another bad report, God. I once heard a parent is only happy. Is only, what was it? Only as happy as their least happy child. As a parent of three kids, I can tell you my life can be going great, but when one of them already at a young age goes through something, you feel that. Any parent relate to that? Only, only as happy as your, your least happy child. And that dad is just sitting there. Yahweh God, touch my son. Bring him to his senses. God, help him. God, help him to come home. God. No doubt that the boy saw dad out there, and maybe he even got agitated at that. Dad, just let him go. I'm still here. And for those here today, some are people who have never made the turn. Maybe you're like the prodigal son. Never made the turn to get to the altar. Never made, never got back there. Never, never, maybe never been baptized in Jesus' name. Had those sins washed away. Had that cleansing. Today can be your day. You can make your way to an altar and take the turn and make the walk. It seems long and you want, maybe you're saying, well, I don't know where it's going to go. But God always blesses people who take journeys toward him even when the path is unknown. Others maybe are here watching online who have wandered away from the house of God and, and your relationship. You don't know if there even is a relationship there. Let this word tell you God is trying to let you know that it's time to come home. But there's this one last group of people this morning that I believe God's trying to reach to. And that's the group of people who have been living in the house with the Father the whole time. You've never left. But you're still lost. I read this story, and I see a warning to me and to everyone else. It's possible to obey God's commands, stay in his house, and still be lost. Matthew 7, he says, not everyone that saith to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter in the kingdom of heaven. He that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, I've, I prophesied in your name, and I, I cast out devils in your name. I did many wonderful works, and then I'll profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. That would have been shocking when he wrote that, when he, when he spoke that back then. I can be a leader in the church, pray, read my Bible, serve, and witness, and yet still be lost. 
As I work for God, I can, be, I can appear to be near God, yet actually be far from him to the point where I'm not paying attention to what he's speaking. I don't know his heart. I'm not keen to the fact that he said, I came, here's why I came, to seek and save that which was lost. And then he says, I'm commissioning you to go ye therefore and teach all nations to, to go make disciples. And so he lets us know, this is why I came, this is why I send you off. And when we get to the point where all we do is just, well, I attend and I give and I serve and that's it. And, and we're not in tune with the Father and what his will is and what his plan is and what he's speaking and, and what hurts his heart. We can get to the point where we get so consumed with our own spiritual disciplines, where we live in the house with the Father, but we stop being in tune or paying attention to the Father. The oldest brother's response to the love that his father shows his younger brother is, he is, is this, after all I've done all these years... And we read that story and we're like, man, who would do that? That's crazy. But then we do it a lot. If we're not careful, we start to view our walk with God and our service to him more out of duty than out of love. Bless God, I've been giving. You know how much I gave to this church? You know how much I've been here for this many years? I've been serving in this. I have missed a service in this long. And it gets to the point where it's like, you owe me something. It took a, a patient father because one of my kids looks at me and says, you know what, you owe me something. I'm going to be like, yeah, and I paid it off for a lot of years. Matter of fact, you owe me something because you ain't here living if it's not for me. You ain't eating the cereal that we share together if it's not for me. You didn't go on the vacation. You didn't sleep on that pillow. I'm starting to sound more and more like a dad. But I don't care how faithful we are, how much we've given financially or in time or in service, how many years we've come to a church, God owes you nothing. He doesn't owe me anything. He already paid a price for my eternal salvation that when I responded to him in obedience, he, he covered me in his blood. I took on his name in baptism and he put his spirit inside of me. And now I'm on this process called sanctification where I'm growing with him. He made that possible. So I don't ever have a right where I'm going to say, you owe me. I've done this. And it becomes about duty rather than love. And in all these thoughts and complaints, though, we can get angry and angrier with God about what we think he owes us. And we can get to the point where we're literally lost in our own house. We can live in such a way that we come to places like this church and we can stand for things that are right and against things that are wrong. And we can identify people who have walked away from the Father. But we can never stay so long in the Father's house that we're content with just Him and us. And we no longer rejoice when someone else comes into the Father's house. Where I'm just happy, it's me and Jesus. And we should be grateful to have us and Jesus. 
But his mission was never just. It's me and you and nobody else. You see, he didn't want to share the father's attention and the fatted calf and the, now he messed it up. I've been here the whole time. Yeah, but this guy was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's found. I'll never forget when somebody said, you want to touch, you want to get into the true lifeline of your church? Just preach the basic plan of salvation and see if people still get excited. If we've heard the one God, spirit-filled baptism message so many times that we yawn and fall asleep when it's preached and we don't come into an altar and say, I want to pray with someone who's never experienced this. I can't wait. I, I pray to God somebody gets baptized today and when they do, I'm going to be so pumped because somebody's sins were washed away. If that doesn't excite us. I want to rejoice with every sinner who repents, every backslider who returns home, every time God restores someone, because I've tasted it myself. And so I value that. And as I close, God is about grace and restoration and hope and forgiveness. And if you find yourself not offering this to someone, or not offering this to yourself. You can be in a dangerous spot. Because it's not just being judgmental towards someone else. Rachel referenced it this morning when she, I believe, was in her closing prayer. She said something about God allow them to see our love and not just what we stand against. That, great job, by the way, Rachel, this morning. <laughs> And, and so she said that, and, and, and I just pray to God that people feel that. But sometimes, for some people, the issue is not about forgiving and accepting someone else that's walked into the church or out there. Sometimes it's about forgiving yourself. Sometimes we're not able to find a place of restoration and renewal like the prodigal son found, because he's forgiven us, but we haven't forgiven ourselves. Because there's things that we've done or participated in or went through that we're ashamed of. Oh, I should have known better. If they ever knew. Oh, the I don't see the father say, we'll talk about it tomorrow. <laughs> when he calls the disciples, I don't see him say, yeah, if you're going to do this, though, I'm accepting applications. I'm reviewing resumes right now. Every story I read about Jesus is, yeah, change takes place. He doesn't, he looks at a woman, says, and caught in adultery, hey, go and sin no more. Your sins are forgiven. I forgave you. Now your life, go live a changed life. He expects us to change based on our, our obedience. We, just can, we don't continue in sin. But we don't read where Jesus calls someone and then says, but let's talk about your past before we get into this. It was always leave the nets behind and then come and follow me and let's begin to rewrite, to, to write a whole new story. 
So if you're here, you need to forgive yourself. Because no doubt, all of us, we have things in our lives that we're not proud of. I always make that joke. If we said next Sunday, we're just going to start down the line and we're just going to put our life stories on the, on the screen and we're going to watch it for the next eight weeks, nobody would come back. I'd be here with me and my family. My wife might even not come to church that day. I don't know. Because, because we wouldn't, you know, I mean, we have a testimony, but there are things that we have done. And for some of us, we're more embarrassed about the things we've done since we've known God. Because we can justify the things before we knew God. We'll tell those as a testimony. I don't hear a lot of testimonies from people. From before, before they were, or from after when they were filled with the Holy Ghost and baptized. We're super pumped to share the ones, oh, that was before God, but God delivered me. We don't have a lot of testimonies in. But then when I was walking with God, I was serving in ministry, and I was a fool a couple times. Let me tell you about that. Because we have this persona that once we're filled, and once we're baptized, and once we're coming to church, once we're in leadership, bless God, I was perfect ever since that day. And so then someone walks into a church setting and they say, I don't want anything to do with this because I'm never going to look like you and walk like you and act like you and worship like you because they, they, they think somehow we give them an impression that we're perfect. And we're not, but we are sinners who are pursuing God who have been empowered from on high when he put his spirit inside of us. He washed away our sins. And so if you're here and you're saying, I got to get to an altar. I want to repent. I want God to forgive me and I want me to forgive myself. But it's not just my own journey. I want the person next to me to know that they can bring me anything. That they can tell me anything. Because I don't, I don't want to be lost in my own house. I don't want to have walked this way so long that, that someone else falls or messes up. And how could they do that? No, I want to be the first one that's going, man, I know it's just any moment I know that they can come back. And the minute I see them on that road, I'm not going for a light jog. I'm getting down. And I am booking why would you do that? Because that's what my father taught me to do. That's what my father taught me to do. So, where are you personally? Jesus Christ is waiting. He was waiting for this exact moment. Maybe you're watching online. You can begin to pray right now. Jesus Christ has been waiting for this moment. A moment where you would return home. Where you would find a place where you say, God take me back. God, forgive me. Were you to approach an altar, recommit your life. But if you're the brother who never left, and I close with this, rejoice with those who made it home. You can stand to your feet. If you're the brother who never left, there's a second part to that. Rejoice with those who made it home or get out and sit on the porch and look for those who haven't. Rejoice with those who made it home or don't get so caught up in your own life, in your own field, and, and your own, oh, the fatty calf, and your own lineage, and your own, uh, uh, your own uh, money that's saved up for you, and your heritage, and your will that your dad's got for you. 
I'm talking on a spiritual sense. Don't just get so caught up and be lost in your own house. You know who should have been sitting on the porch with his dad? The older brother. The older brother. Jesus, the father, shouldn't be the only one looking for people that are lost. The older brother should have been right there. The older brother should have been outrunning his older dad and said, oh, dad, I'll beat you there. Last one there is a rotten egg. The older brother should have beat his dad to his younger brother because he should have been there on the porch looking for him too. Church, I don't want to be lost in my own house. I don't want to just be so caught up in my own stuff from the father and my own relationship that I somehow lost track of celebrating restoration of celebrating when people come back home. And when the party goes on, I'm not sitting outside on the front porch. I'm going back into my father's house and I am rejoicing. Even though I wasn't the one that was baptized, sins washed away, repentance. I'm gonna rejoice just as much when my brother or sister does it because that is what the father taught me to do. Oh, I invite you to find a place today. And maybe this is for you. Maybe this is the moment where you begin to make your way to an altar for yourself. Maybe this is the moment where you come to an altar and you start looking for someone else that you'd love to pray with because maybe they're making their way back. Maybe they're repenting of their sins and you're saying, hey, I want to get alongside you and I want you to know that I will personally walk this journey with you. Oh, I'm looking for the person today. I'm looking for the backslider. I'm looking for someone who's walked away from Jesus because I believe they can come home. I'm looking down that road. I believe one of these days I'm going to see some families coming back. Forgiveness was Jesus. the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, come to the altar, the Father.